1: Welcome, sweet angels, to yet another episode of After Work Drinks With. This week, we're speaking with Pandora Sykes, journalist and co-host of the
2: incredibly popular British podcast, The Hilo pandora's first book how do we know we're doing it right is released in australia on july 21st and ahead of its release we gobbled it up and then asked pandora about everything from the social identity of motherhood to what it means to be flattened as a woman to the way that women are presented in the media we found this discussion incredibly informative and interesting
1: and we know you will too please share it rate review and subscribe and we will see you again next week enjoy bye
2: Hello Pandora and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. We're so happy to have you here and we absolutely loved your book. Thank you, I'm really chuffed to hear that, thank you. I really loved, you started the book by saying that this book won't help you get the right life because what it really is, is breaking down the fact that achieving the perfect life is a myth. Do you remember when you realised that that was true for you? Was there a specific moment?
3: Genuinely not. Um, I, I don't think I really even thought... Or necessarily realize that that's exactly what the book was doing to almost at the end because you write all the essays well i wrote all the essays separately and then um i started to realize these overarching themes as i was as i was writing them um, you know the, the paradox of choice the idea that with endless choice it becomes harder to make a decision and that's where that kind of pressure to make the right one and live the right life comes from but I I actually really didn't like the title of the book. My, <laughs> my agent came up with it as an idea and I was like but what if people think it's a self-help book? I don't want people to pick this book up and think that I'm going to be telling them how they're doing it right. Um, so instead I hope it will kind of encourage people to not so much think of answers but think of all the questions you could ask yourself and um, it's it's less that I realized that life was not something you could get right and more that I realized how important asking questions of myself was.
2: We just touched on the paradox of choice and that's something that we wanted to talk about. Um, so it's a phrase that was coined by Barry Schwartz who has an amazing TED talk that everyone should watch. Um, can you just explain in a kind of nutshell what that concept means?
3: Yes, yeah, so the paradox of choice is, choice is, you know, To have no choice is unbearable, Um, but to have too much choice can be confusing. He said, we've fallen into this trap where we think that because choice is good, it's only good. And what I mean by that is not fundamental freedoms, um, which are obviously imperative to a humane and uh, sane society. But stuff like, he used the example of 175 different types of salad dressing. He said, nobody needs to go into a supermarket and see 175 different. I think that might be a US thing because I'm not seeing 175 salad dressings in Sainsbury's. But anyway, I digress. And I my example was, nobody needs to go online and scroll through 88 pages of black dresses. You know, now for a woman to go shopping, we are just absolutely drowning in online e-tailers and high street stores and fast fashion and fast than fast fashion and Instagram fashion. And it's just not necessary. I think there is too much and that's when it becomes harder. There's too much of everything. And that's when it becomes harder to find your way through um, and to retain your conviction because you're absorbing so many things all the time and so many opinions all the time that I think it becomes very hard to know yourself or to even know the life that you want to lead.
1: You write in my favourite essay about being flattened, saying you spent years trying to squash the louder and messier and more abrasive parts of your personality and apologising for the parts that you can't change. Can you explain what flattening is and why you think that so many women ascribe to this kind of way of being?
3: So flattening, I think, is historic, but we're seeing it funnelled through the lens of social media and the internet now which gives it quite an interesting dimension but the way I saw it is that women were constantly making themselves smaller or more palatable or just like easier to understand um in order to feel like they fitted in whether that's in their personal life or in the workplace and I think that that is um, a product of a patriarchal society where women are told that there is only so many ways that they can be. But I also think it's now something that's so um, ingrained in us that we perpetuate it, even amongst women. Um, I think some of the judgment of other women can come the worst from women. Um, But that's not because I think that women are evil bitches and it's handbags at dawn. It's because I think that they've been trained to or we have been trained to believe that there's only so much space um and then that gets so much more complicated for women that aren't white and middle class you know if white and middle class women are feeling like oh there's only so many of us that can exist you know uh someone from a working class background or a black woman is being told that there's you know only space to have one of her somewhere oh we've already ticked that box and so flattening i think is a um a societal uh, entrenched historic thing, but I also think it's a very modern thing too. It's just being re
2: constantly. And it really kind of extends to the way that we present women in media. And you had such an amazing, um, beautiful quote about that, which I quickly wanted to read out um, in regard to Meghan Markle. So you said, she has been flattened into a paper doll, but on one side a victim, on the other a hero with nothing in between. I know this is a big question, but do you see that representation of women in media changing at all? Like, Are you hopeful that it's shifting or do you think it's, it's kind of stagnant?
3: I feel like a lot of it is kind of like, empty rhetoric because we're talking a lot about how unruly women are you know there's lots of like there's lots of content out there that's or conversations happening that are about how complicated women are or how badass they are or you know getting naked on instagram or all these ways that we're meant to think that women are now allowed to be their kind of complicated conflicting selves and all their glory. But in practice, we are not seeing that happen. I think it's a load of hot air. Like it's not even is Megan Markle's not even part of the conversation about Megan Markle anymore. It's all about what you think about what other people think of her. Like either you agree with what other people think of her, or you don't agree. It's not even about the woman anymore. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that can keep changing, but I, I don't think that, um, just because we're talking a lot about it or people are writing books that get in the bestseller chart or there are women that you can follow on Instagram that are really outspoken. Like, I I don't believe that that means we're there yet. I think that's a start, but I think that, yeah, I think that in practice it's, it's unfortunately more complicated.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I think that your assessment of success and specifically of fear of missing out on goals would really resonate with a lot of people, particularly where you re-evaluated what you thought was ambition and passion driving you to do more and be better, but now you've come to the realization that it's actually a negative space. Can you explain that thinking a bit further?
3: Yeah, I used to um I used to think that I was kind of driven by uh ambition, like a, a positive, healthy, you know, need to move forward. And then I realized that quite often, and now it's something that I really have to interrogate daily, I was pushing myself from a place of not feeling like I was enough. So it was a negative space. It was less about what I wanted to achieve and more about what I wasn't or what I hadn't or what I didn't. And I do, I I see this kind of, you know, the hashtag goals culture as being a pretty dangerous example of that because it encourages us just to focus on the end goal. Um, and to disregard the process as something that might be meaningful or valuable and actually it's the achieving of something rather than the achievement that is so restorative and building and that's where you learn and that's where you get the joy because the actual moment of something being finished the actual moment of the success is very small compared to the moment of striving for it and working for it and I don't think it's surprising we're at this point because all we're seeing is like visible products from people. Um, We're not really seeing process. And I don't think we should have to see process to know (laughs) that it's happening. Um, But we are at a point at the moment where we feel like if we can't see something, it didn't happen. And I think that that is bringing us to a, to a point where we're just seeing a lot of goals actualized and not thinking about what's bringing us, to that point. And that was where the acronym of FOMOG came up with a fear of missing out on goals, which is not my acronym. I'm pretty sure it came from a young model called Leomi Anderson who was worried she was not gonna reach her goal of being a millionaire by the age of 25.
1: The way I took it as well for me personally is fear of missing out on goals, but also trying to reassess whether these goals that you're worried about hitting are even actually what you want. So for example, like being a freelancer or a journalist, and seeing other writers being published places that I haven't even pitched for or tried to write for, and then suddenly feeling as though I'm doing something wrong and I'm not on the right track. I find it hard to kind of figure out whether these goals are what you want or just what you think you should want.
3: I think it's hard to get that middle ground as well as how do you stay engaged and aware? Like it's important to read the work of other people and to be online, I think, um, so that you become aware of... um, The mood and the tone and you learn from that but at the same time I don't think it's healthy to be drowning in a sea of comparisonitis where you're just constantly seeing yourself through the lens of other people or the lens of what other people are doing and um finding that middle point I think is is really difficult
2: And I think that chapter has like such an amazing new resonance given the time we're in. And a lot of the women that we're talking to were maybe having conversations about the like relationship between their identity and their work. But that's almost become this all-consuming thing now that the pandemic has thrown everyone's work kind of up in the air. Are you having conversations with people that are making you feel like our relationship with our careers has maybe shifted fundamentally this year. What seems to be coming through, which I think is incredible, and I
3: don't think would have happened if we hadn't had this kind of global disaster, is that so many people I know, including me, are looking to make decisions that aren't necessarily financially profitable, but would be kind of holistically, I don't even know if that's the right word, holistically or kind of... um, emotionally uh, of value and that is just not something that we have necessarily been led to think is always a good idea like you know we've always seen progress as earning more money or you know having an increased social status and what the pandemic's done is it's it's ripped away the bulk of a lot of people's salary and it's made you look at things in a different way that i really did not see happening in a capitalist society and i think it has led to people having really good discussions about work i i it hasn't really been um different in my life because i work from home with or without lockdown but i know that a lot of people when they started working from home had to have conversations with their team or with their boss where they said look just because i'm always around to work doesn't mean we should always be on. So people have had to get almost kind of mentally quite strict about stepping away from their computer um, in a way that I don't think we necessarily did before. Like bosses could really take the piss out of the fact that you you have your email on your telephone. So theoretically you are always reachable. And now I kind of see people drawing lines around that in a way that we didn't really before.
2: Can you use the phrase leaky identity to um, discuss that, which me and Izzy both loved? Could you just quickly explain what a leaky identity is?
3: So that's something that Derek Thompson, a writer for The Atlantic, came up with. And it's this idea that your private and your personal, or, or rather your work self and your leisure self are not separate. They're all leaking into one. And that happens for, ha- has happened for a few reasons. Um, obviously, technology, normally the biggest, the biggest change. But you don't just leave the office and leave your work self at your desk anymore because of your smartphone, you take it with you. And because of social media, where we feel like we need to kind of be externalizing everything we're doing, our personal and our professional are also getting all tangled up in another so that work has become our identity rather than our occupation. And I have definitely fallen foul of this and still you know i am not cured quote unquote i I definitely still um have a leaky identity but i don't think it necessarily has to be a bad thing i have a leaky identity because i am i work from home and my children are also at home so my identity is going to be necessarily leaky but i think there's a difference between having like a leaky physical identity and having a leaky psychological one where you don't really know who you are you know what self belongs where
1: Just switching up the topics for a second, I loved the part of your Little Pieces Everywhere essay where you spoke of realizing that you'd been wanting to reject the social identity of motherhood. Um, And as I've gotten older, I've started to reassess the reasons behind me not feeling the same maternal pull as a lot of my friends. And I'm starting to realize, and your essay really helped with that, is that the social identity you speak of has a lot to do with it rather than the thought of being a mother itself. Can you explain that a little bit? I'm sure there's lots of people
3: that would feel like that as you look at this sort of cult of motherhood. And um, it has become almost like this, this sort of cult that you see online. And it becomes like, Oh, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, I don't I, you know, I don't kind of sneer at any of it. It hasn't really been a reality for me, because I took such short maternity leaves with my children. And my my bursting years have been my busiest work years which is always apparently the fucking annoying way that it seems to sorry i don't even know if i can swear the very annoying way no, <laughs> okay answer. it's the fucking annoying way that it often <laughs> seems to go is that like it's all happening at the same time um but i yeah i think that's kind of another example of flattening i suppose that um, you can compartmentalize mothers politically and socially as well as culturally um i've had it happen to me where I've had children and all people have done is ask about my children as if I couldn't be producing interesting work at that time. But then it can also happen the other way when, you know, women are kind of forced to deny the existence of their children in order to be seen as kind of serious working people. Where I think we've got this really dangerous thing is what Jacqueline Rose called the neoliberal intensification of parenting. So this very dominant motif of the white middle class mother with I mean embarrassing I'm wearing a breton t-shirt, but you know, children, children dressed in identical Breton t-shirts and kind of like, you know, uh baby chino, like just musical classes, baby massage, this whole sort of like community that you have to subscribe to. Um and that it's assumed that you're part of, and that is excluding a vast swathe of mothers. Um, there is, I mean, the, I interviewed recently a, a brilliant woman called Candice Brathwaite who wrote a book called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. And it was, it's the first book that's been published in the UK about black British
1: motherhood, which is- That's so crazy. We listened to that and we were both so shocked.
3: It's crazy. but And then even if you look beyond that, okay, so now we finally got a book about black British motherhood, but like, is there? I don't think I've read a book about like motherhood within the South Asian community. Like it's, it, it, you know, it's we're making like the smallest baby steps towards diversifying motherhood. And um, that's, I think what I mean by the social identity of motherhood is that I, I don't reject the community itself. I love, I have a lot of friends with children. Like, I love that. I reject those labels and that kind of instant classification that comes, that
2: comes with it. This episode of After Work Drinks is brought to you by Bumble. Though most of us singles
1: have probably been on a date or two via Bumble, it's much more than just a dating app. With three different modes that include professional networking and friend finding, as well as dating, Bumble is a social network by women for everyone.
2: Launched in 2017, Biz is Bumble's fresh take on networking, with an emphasis on finding professional opportunities over job hunting.
1: Users can instantly find others who are looking to network, connect professionally and mentor.
2: Adding to Bumble's vision of becoming the social network for people you don't know yet, biz is powered by the notion that one connection can lead to the opportunity of a lifetime.
1: Download Bumble today and make the first move. One app, three modes, one mission.
2: We wanted to pivot quickly to fashion for a moment um, because you touched on something that we've been talking about a lot recently, which is this weird um, paradox on Instagram, which is that it kind of originally was a place to showcase originality of style and that's how people became popular and in recent years it seems like it's shifted to creating a homogenous style where there is a very specific Instagram uniform that everyone seems to be adhering to and now we even feel in our own lives like we are like somehow accidentally morphing into that and we don't even know how um and you write about that amazingly in the book so would you mind just talking about why you think that shift has happened and what you think it kind of says about where we're at.
3: I think it's really hard to resist as well, um, because when you start looking at, do I like something because other people are doing it, or do I like something, you know, from my autonomous self? Like, it's not always, It's not always possible to 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 answer that. As well. I think it's happened because. Um, I, I, in the same way that I think Instagram has turbocharged trends, so that we don't just have trends now we have like micro trends and micro micro trends, is that everything is everything changes very quickly, and it's quite hard to get a footing. And I think what we've seen is that you will be digitally rewarded for looking like you've kind of nailed it at a specific time. And so then I think what happens is lots of other people see that sort of perceived success. I mean, Granted, it's a, it's a small success. It's a fashion success. But nonetheless, people see that success and then think that that is the formula. That's the way to look like you belong or to feel like you belong. And and women have always done that in that we have always, um, or even human beings, we've mimicked one another. That's how we learn. That's how we socialize. That's how we feel safe. That's how we feel part of a tribe. But obviously, if we've seen anything, and not just in fashion, we've seen that kind of tribal discourse has gone Really crazy in the last few years, and it's amped up even in the last six months. Where there's this real idea that you know these are your people, and you belong to this. And I think the danger of that on Instagram is that it is really buying into the fact that women feel like they are not enough, and that they need certain trinkets in order to belong. And when you see people being rewarded for that behavior, it, it feels subconsciously like it's something that you
1: should be doing or you should be wearing. And it's so hard to avoid as well because, for example, now i will go into vintage shops and I stand there and I'm just like, I don't even know what I like
2: anymore or
1: who I am or what to wear or what to get or what's cool and what's not. And it's just very <laughs> confusing.
2: And it's like you're always influenced by someone. So it's like you said, you can't even say there's an authentic level of of being inspired by someone versus an inauthentic level you know what I mean because that's what you're always doing maybe you used to be inspired by Chloe Sevigny but now it's an Instagram influencer it's like one's not better than the other but I don't even know how you figure out who the hell you are and all amongst that anyway <laughs> sorry you've stumbled on us during a crisis <laughs>
3: but, that's, but that's really normal I think is to be everyday thinking who am I and what do I want the danger is that we seem to think we should have an answer to that like I interviewed a psychotherapist um recently called Julia Samuel And she said, you know, that I am seeing, so she's in her 60s and she's written a brilliant new book called This Too Shall Pass about how hard we find it to tolerate change and unexpected experiences. And she said, you know, I am seeing it really in your uh, generation. And you've just got to accept that you are made up of many selves and those selves are changing every day and you will never truly know yourself. And I think that because that's so uncomfortable, people were actively resisting it and um as for being influenced as you say you are always going to be influenced by something so it's you don't want to get totally lost trying to be a completely autonomous self because it is it's actually impossible it is actually impossible you'd have to move to mars like there would have to be no one else existing
1: for you to not i would be influenced by like the pellet then you would mars. be
3: influenced <laughs> and, and and that's and that's okay but i think feeling lost is actually quite a good thing because it means that we're like interrogating ourselves it means that we're asking questions I don't think it's comfortable but um I don't think it's a bad
2: thing something we were quite um relieved (laughs) to read uh you write about was the fact that you can get like a total cultural overload because obviously it's such a huge part of your job to be tapped into the zeitgeist and across the shows and the books and everything um and you you appear to do it so effortlessly but I can imagine behind the scenes it can turn into a kind of pressure Um, how do you navigate that informational overload
3: I don't think I'm actually nearly as connected as people would assume that I would be like I'm not on Instagram all day and I don't you know read like rolling news bulletins and I have my phone off more than I have it on Um, just because I don't think that in order to absorb that stuff you need to be um, immersed in it 24-7. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything good from that. Um, I actually don't feel as overloaded as I have witnessed a lot of people feeling. But I think that's only because I have had very bad insomnia for the last two or three years. And I've had to really look at how I interact with technology. And when I, and when I look at it, so like I very rarely watch TV in the evenings. I very rarely even have my phone on in the evening. So annoyingly, I have spent a lot of time at my computer in the evening, which is basically even worse. So it's not like I've got that far with that, but because I've had to make those changes, I think I have looked at kind of overload Uh, from a personal point of view before I think I saw it becoming a real kind of cultural conversation. But I, I'm not really honestly on top of anything except maybe what books are coming out now. Like, I don't think, and I think this is a really dangerous idea, that you can expect yourself to be on top of everything at all times. Like, one of the questions I get asked a lot is how do you manage to read so much? Well, I read so much because I do virtually nothing else with my evenings. Um, I... I'm not a fan of cooking. I'll cook sometimes, but like, that's not how, I don't find it relaxing to spend two hours cooking. Um, I don't really do very much exercise, um, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but these things have slid in order for me to do lots of reading and I'm not out every night as well. The, The danger I think is that people think, oh, I have to be across absolutely everything well someone who's really up on what music's coming out or has seen every new release at the movie theater is going to be way you know more informed on that than i am on books um you you can't be engaged with everything you have to pick your poison for want of a better word
1: another part of the book that i loved was when you wrote about embracing the idea that happiness isn't a static state can you expand on that a little bit
3: think there's so when I started looking at happiness I bought uh, a lot of books or looked at a lot of books in the library and they were I'm looking at them now my bookshelf they were almost all yellow which I think is quite funny that is the I mean that's the emoji color isn't it that's the happy color but also um, it made me realize that the way that we talk about happiness is almost like it's something to catch and pin down rather than it being um something quite elusive and transitory and that happens at the kind of peak of your experience so the way we talk about happiness now i think is how we should talk about contentment like day to day you should be striving for contentment in your life with peaks of happiness you know like a really great party with friends or a lovely holiday or um a really great bit of work news, but like you shouldn't feel happy all the time. Um, and also you can't feel happy all the time. It's a, it only exists with sadness. It's a contrastive state.
2: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: You write in your final essay that uh, about how millennials are kind of called the sensitive generation and that you're convinced that an overemphasis on empathy, especially when it's to the detriment of other emotional philosophies, is a root cause of the raw nerve. Could you please explain that thinking and also what the raw nerve is for those who haven't heard of the phrase?
3: I think when we talk about millennials being sensitive, it's often done in like quite a, a judgmental way. And it sounds like it suggests that we're not resilient and I actually think as a generation we're really resilient. I do think we're more sensitive um, necessarily to the way culture needs to change or the things that have been perpetuated that shouldn't be. So I think there is a real difference in those two Um, and I think probably on paper kind of me criticizing empathy could sound Dangerous, but it's not the concept that we believe empathy to be that I'm criticizing. Rather, that I think what we're talking about or should be talking about is compassion. Um, Empathy, which a lot of the time people use for sympathy, I think there's just quite a lot of confusion over words, is the idea that you put yourself in someone's shoes in order to know how they feel. The reason why I think empathy is really dangerous is it's impossible to put yourself in everyone's shoes. And it's actually not that helpful because if you are always trying to make decisions from someone else's lived experience then there's no there's no rationality i think we should be compassionate to how other people experience the world and their experiences but i don't think we should expect i think it's quite arrogant to assume that we can put ourselves in everyone's shoes with all our own privileges and complications and Differing statuses in the world, so that's that's why I think that empathy has limits, and that we should be looking more. I mean, Paul Bloom, psychologist Paul Bloom, calls it radical compassion, um, and that's a political thing, actually. Radical compassion.
2: You touched a bit before on how you have your phone off a lot, which will be quite wild to some people because I can't remember the last time <laughs> I had my phone off apart from on a plane. Um, I know, like I, I think <laughs> that wasn't sorry, okay. Pandora's eyes are like so wide. <laughs> I'm in quarantine at the moment in a hotel. So my screen time is literally like 12 hours a day. Um, (laughs) But I would love um, you to explain, like, did you just boundary set from the get go with technology? Was it a relationship? Did you just kind of get it? What was that whole um, situation?
3: Desperate to know more about how long have you been in that hotel room for?
2: uh um you'll see like my carved numbers in the wall are six days so i've got eight to go oh my god okay sorry um
3: i i have quite bad anxiety and i find it i think it's annoying if you know that you have something to not try and look at ways to make it um a bit better uh if those things are within your power i'm not suggesting that people who struggle with mental health can just cure themselves but it did seem like I had a responsibility if I felt very anxious to look at those things that might be contributing. Um, and again, it was the same with the insomnia, you know, to try and look at the, like trying to cure yourself of insomnia is really boring. You know, you have to look at like, it's it's all the dull stuff. It's like no wine and no coffee and no screen time and all those things. So I was trying to sort of look at ways to make uh, those feelings, you know, to minimize those feelings um and technology is unsurprisingly a massive one and now that i am further away from it um like typically i i've been using it more this week because obviously the book's coming out next week and i just launched a new podcast i'm kind of on on social media every day but normally i don't keep the instagram app on my phone and i download it once a week i check twitter maybe once a day i'll turn off my phone for a whole weekend um because I feel like it's really important to see your phone as a tool that serves you rather than you being like a slave to it. And because I've now taken that step back from social media, I can feel, I can register that I feel differently now. Like this morning I started my day by looking on Instagram and I got out of bed and I I felt kind of rubbish. I'd seen holidays that people were on, which is incredible, I did not realize that was happening. So the holidays that people were on and you know, I saw people having great times and having all these opinions and i felt like weighted by it i felt weighed down by it and i had been awake for 10 minutes and when you have that critical distance i think like i now do and you can feel this change in you when you're on your phone a lot it becomes something that it's something now that i really want to protect i i can't i can't produce the amount of work that I've been trying to produce in the last year or be the mother that I want to be whilst also being fully engaged all the time with what's happening on my phone and the internet. I just can't, and so I had to pick.
1: Yeah, it's so true as well, what you say in one of your essays that with so many things to do, so there's Netflix with a billion shows that you haven't watched, all these books you need to read, podcasts you haven't listened to, um, all of these things that you have to do. So if I have a free night, I end up standing there feeling overwhelmed by all of this choice and all of these kind of must-do activities that I end up just getting overwhelmed and doing nothing and scrolling on Instagram all night
3: I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing nothing but um, feeling what uh, Adam Phillips calls those vacancies of attention I think it's quite dangerous um, because you've come away feeling like you've achieved nothing but also feeling totally overwhelmed at the same time and um, I think lots of people have actually uh, dealt with that quite well during the pandemic. I think because we had to use our telephones to socialise almost entirely, quite a few people who were admittedly obsessed with their phone before found themselves kind of tiring of it and going away and doing something creative. Like you know, unsurprisingly, people are spending a lot of time kind of titivating their home. Like I've been doing a lot of painting of furniture and painting of walls and putting up shelves and doing that kind of thing and. For me personally, I I find that much
1: more fulfilling. Okay, final question. Because our podcast is all about sitting down to have a drink together, all things aside, coronavirus, children, being allowed out of the house, if you could get a drink anywhere, where would that be? And what would your drink of choice be? Am I allowed to choose a different country or does it have to be within my... Choose a different country.
2: Yeah.
3: Okay, so uh, after work, I would fly to... (laughs) Um, I would go have an apparel spritz on the Amalfi coast at Palazzo Avino on the Amalfi coast. Oh, Amazing,
2: geez. that sounds <laughs> lush right now. I know for me, especially. <laughs> We're not allowed alcohol. My friend's trying to smuggle <laughs> yeah. me in a bottle of wine and a kombucha bottle on Friday, so wish her luck. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Pandora. We really appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you so much, guys. And best of luck in London. Thanks, Pandora. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye.